new vitality, a new power with which to cope with illusion, or with which to uh, achieve victory over error, which otherwise appears to be closing in upon him. The usual problem, then, is to recognize the dream as a symbolical group of symptoms, symptoms which have to do with some phase of character or temperament. These symptoms most frequently express themselves uh, as a result of a critical alignment of problem factors. Very often they will proceed at crisis, and if they are not in some way regarded, uh, the individual from then on falls immediately into a more desperate situation. The symbols used in such dreams are derived, as we mentioned last week, from a kind of vocabulary of natural figures, natural uh, objects, which have certain interpretive overtones, as objects with which we particularly associate values. These values arising from our mythology, our legendary, our lore, art, literature, or culture, and values which have become accepted as a language of value by ourselves. We can easily understand that the objective nature must reach as far as it can into the subjective to meet this impression pattern that is seeking to come through. Uh, the objective uh, refines itself from things seen or tasted or smelt or touched uh, to things which are overtones. It moves as far toward the abstract as it can, and the abstract moves as far downward toward the concrete as possible. And if we are fortunate, there is a meeting of these two, forming a bridge for the actual communication of the instruction, such as whatever it may be. So we will say that nearly anyone who is under psychic pressure of any kind is subject to these warnings, to these uh, diagnostic aids, which are intended to make possible his rapid recognition of his own condition and to inspire him to a proper remedy. If man, from the very early part of his culture, had continued to remember this psychic factor in himself, had clung firmly to these dream symbols, had accepted the meaning of them uh, more generally and more generously. The chances are there would be very little need for psychologists today. Each individual could interpret his own inner life. But because we have raced headlong past these tasks, because we have relegated most symbolism to a mythological and imaginary sphere, we have forgotten that symbolism is a continuing language, that the myths and legends that we have learned 
or have remembered are still the fabric for the communication of subjective impulse. We no longer literally accept the myth, but the myths themselves continue to form this alphabet of meaningful symbols for the communication of internal impulse. So I feel that it is quite proper and right to say that man does receive a kind of instruction, that he does have the right upon request or in need to achieve a closer sense of conscious identity with his own total existence in order that all of himself may be available to the emergency that arises. If he does not take advantage of this right and privilege which he has in nature, then the fault lies largely with himself and not with nature's intention, for nature wishes him to make the correction. It is his own audacity which causes him to refuse. So in the problem of this type of correction, it is obvious that the message bears a direct relationship to the personal need. And as persons interpreting myths and legends, interpret them differently, so that even mythologists have no common mind on these things. So it is true that symbols have different meanings to different persons and at different times, but always there is a meaning, and that meaning is always in some way related uh, to our own personal psychological pattern. So, uh, taking this thinking, we know that in philosophy, for example, there has always been the recommendation that the individual in the presence of a serious decision should pause and reflect. Now, it is this peculiar pause which is the key uh, to receptivity to the psychic impression. If the person who is about to make an important decision would stop for a moment, go by himself, relax and be still, and then very quietly put together the elements of his past, he would find that he has a skill that he did not suspect. That hasty decision may have complicated a situation that could otherwise be reasonable. It is this pausing, this stopping, this letting go of the conscious objective machinery of the plot and the scheme and the strategy. It is the individual attempting to make all major decisions from composure rather than from emergency. Emergency does not permit the psychic self to be heard. Emergency forces continually greater objectivity. The individual, as the emergency progresses, progresses, must make his decisions from ever lower levels of his own intelligence, until in panic he makes the worst decision of all. Thus the idea that the ancients had, 
that in grave moments men should go into the temple and pray and ask the help of God in their decision. Simply meant that they should go, be quiet, state their problem internally or in words if it so pleased them, addressing these, these words to the highest concept of truth which they could conceive. And then they should be quiet, attentive, and receptive to the answer, whether the answer was to come through the oracle or whether the answer was assumed to appear miraculously in their private lives. But this very process of placing ourselves in a mood of expectant relaxation, a mood in which we resolve to permit an impression from some superior level of consciousness to be received into our objective nature. This pause, this moment of quietude, opened the door in many instances, allowing the subjective to tell us its larger decision or to reveal to us more clearly uh, the elaborate complexity of the undertaking with which we were concerned. This meditational, prayer-like mood had its own relationship or similarity to sleep, for it was merely a partial receptivity, perhaps disciplined by religion or philosophy, but it was certainly the individual learning to listen for some kind of an inner voice, some kind of an inner impression uh, which would intuitively enrich his decisions. If, as in the case of modern man, we have come to almost completely ignore the spiritual overtone of life, in which while perhaps we may claim to believe, we make very slight practical use of our believing it is evident uh, that the machinery of the mystical experience would alter its appearance. And under the conditions of today, there is less and less likelihood of this experience occurring to us while we are in a waking conscious state. Never before has waking consciousness of man been more totally locked in phenomena. Never before have we been so continually plagued with external pressure. Nor has there ever been a time when our self-discipline was as poorly organized and developed. We are most, for the most part, lack the capacity to relax or to enter into a truly meditative relationship with life. We are not able in the waking state to achieve true receptivity of consciousness. We are continually battling, and what a time we might like to spend in such meditative procedure may be so frequently interrupted as to make the procedure comparatively valueless. And so at last, after the long and difficult day, we tumble into bed. And our first release from our own problem is unconsciousness. 
and sometimes we are even deprived of this blessing, continuing to toss and thrash through the night, trying to escape the intensity of habit mechanism which no longer permit us to rest even when the time is available. If, however, through physical or psychic fatigue, we actually go to sleep, we not only, for the first time, achieve a kind of relaxation, but never before in history has our psychic load been heavier. Uh, not too long ago, the individual psychic load was mostly grave concern for the immediate and imminent circumstances of his personal existence. He went along very much a creature of habit. He did not expect unusual reward. He was not particularly discontented. He accepted a lot similar to that into which he had been born. And his main worries involved sickness or loss or accidents and things of that nature. He was not uh, obsessed with world politics. He was not ready to collapse psychologically if the wrong candidate got in. He had none of these delightful measures that are burdening us even this fair evening. Actually, Therefore, his psychic load was perhaps more religious than ours. His fear of sin was probably more acute than ours. His fear of nonconformity was more acute. But he was not in debt beyond control. He was not afraid to be sick because he could not pay the doctor's bills. He was not under the psychic pressure of intense mechanism, he was not uh, jealous and envious to the degree that we are. And he did not uh, come face to face with the tremendous conflict of powerful personalities that today are our normal uh, lot. Thus his psychic load uh, did not impose itself so directly upon him nor did it demand such a crushing and crashing breakthrough as the one we bear today. As a result of this uh, situation, we note that apparently uh, the psychological sleep consciousness of man is more active now than ever before in our recorded history. This activity seems to mean that the person is more psychically stress-ridden than ever before, and that the insecurities of life are accumulating more rapidly than they used to. And where this situation is not met with some uh, appropriate remedy, nervous breakdowns are almost certain, heart trouble is more frequent than it used to be, and in spite of our elaborate scientific discoveries and the ways in which we can now combat many ailments, the public health is not as good as it was 50 years ago. Length of life in some cases is greater, but it is merely an extended period of time for acute mental anguish. Therefore, there is some doubt as to the favor that we have enjoyed.
Bearing all these factors a little bit in mind, we can see why many persons under a heavy psychic load should have disturbed rest. This disturbance is of several natures and kinds. Some people just simply can't seem to sleep at all. Others fitfully. Some have the sense of dreaming but do not remember the dream. And of those dreams that are remembered, more and more are ominous. More and more are unpleasant dreams. Dreams which do not have much in them of contentment. They are not the dream of the happy child to be found in some fairy tale. They are the dreams that come close to nightmares. They are dreams in which man continues to experience the difficulties, perhaps intensified, uh, by which his daily life is so unhappily punctuated. This also uh, means that dreaming is sometimes a kind of safety valve. The individual, more or less symbolically, continues the lines of thought uh, with which he was previously concerned. Interpretation of such dreams from a term point of standpoint of instruction is simply to point out that the individual is under too continuous attention that he is not able to disentangle himself sufficiently from his own physical and mental preoccupations to relax even when he has the chance. Someone has said what would be the best proof that there is no psychic stress in the individual. Well, there is no real way in which you can dogmatically answer such a question, but it seems to me that one of the proofs that the individual's pressures are not too great for him is that he can lie awake without sleeping, but resting and in bed for eight hours without a negative thought. If he can rest and his natural thoughts are pleasant, if perhaps he is inclined to indulge in certain fantasy that is charming, gentle, non-destructive, or if he can carry lightly through the hours uh, some pleasant prospect which he hopes to advance, and without straining the mind, maintains a subtle positivity in which his thinking is advancing some good cause or advancing the solution of his own problem without pressure or tension. If he can do this, the chances are his nervous system is under control. If also in these situations he finds that he awakens reasonably refreshed from sleep, when he does sleep, when his dreams are few, or when at least he has no memory of them. It may also probably be that his pressures are not too great. Uh, we wonder sometimes if a certain type of sleep fatigue does not really testify to unremembered sleep activity. In other words, we may not have any remembrance of a dream, but if we wake up in a morning without sleep having refreshed us, 
And we get out of bed as tired as when we went to bed. And there are no physical symptoms or no physical evidence to support the theory that we are suffering from a physical ailment of any kind. Then it is quite possible that this lassitude is due to an intense sleep phenomena which was not remembered. Because if the various faculties do not rest adequately, then we do not have the sense of refreshment which should naturally follow rest. So if in the morning you wake up with the feeling that you have just finished a nine-round fight uh, without having any memory of the fight, but the full measure of exhaustion and a certain degree of psychic scarring, it is quite possible that there has been very little rest due to psychic pressure. Some persons do not naturally seem to dream as easily as others. And in many instances, apparently, the dream mechanism does not immediately function. This is the reason why, under certain types of analytical uh, thought and treatment, uh, a person who has not dreamed will begin to do so. And having begun to stir the subconscious by analysis or by investigation, it suddenly becomes increasingly active and apparently aware that it will now be regarded begins to produce phenomena. In dreaming, generally speaking, uh, dreams divide into several different types. And our own ability to recognize the nature of the dream appears to be innate. And even in the presence of some dream or sleep experiences, we have the awareness that we are asleep. In other cases, this awareness is lacking. The most important and vital dreams that come to the individual do not come in the period of greatest sleep or sleep maximum. Thus, dreams are not as likely to arise in the first four hours of sleep as they are toward morning or toward the time of wakening. A psychic dream maxima seems to be established an hour or two before the normal waking time. And as dreams frequently cause the individual to awaken, it seems as though man passes through a period in sleep which is highly significant. The intensity or soundness of sleep gradually decreases. Normally the person sleeps the most completely and heavily immediately after going to sleep. Gradually over a period of hours the sleep intensity diminishes so that under normal conditions, the awakening is more gradual than the process of going to sleep. Not long prior to the point in which objectivity is restored by awaking, the sleeper passes into a condition between sleeping and waking which may be likened very much to the trance. He is not awake, but he is not fully and completely asleep. It is at this time that dreams 
visions, premonitions, are most vivid and most frequent. In these times, the individual frequently has a sense of being awake, though still asleep, and experiences a combination of pressures. He is partly aware objectively, therefore is able to contribute uh, to the acceptance of the dream itself. He is partly subjective, and his condition may be likened to a deep meditation or to a period of intensive uh, concentration or contemplative discipline. I would assume from what we are able to learn nowadays that your prodromic dream or your dream which has to do with the uh, condition of the individual in some stressful situation must usually break through at this time. Therefore, the important dream comes not in the soundness of sleep, but in the bridging of the sleep-waking state. Because after all, the pressureful dream seeks to be remembered. There is the desire that it should be recorded. Nature wants us to know that dream when we wake up. If we are unaware of the dream, it cannot serve us objectively. It cannot be an intercession from our own inner nature if we are not aware of it. So the problem of the dream bringing with it awareness of its own meaning or purpose is met by nature providing a peculiar relationship of sleeping and waking uh, to serve as the medium for this dream. Now the dream itself uh, very often bears some more or less direct relationship to the problem involved or to the question asked or to the need which is present. This is not always, however, uh, directly evident. The dream may be a moving dream, a from now forward, or from now upward, or from now downward. The dream summarizes in one way or another the nature of the confusion in ourselves and its true and often unrecognized cause. Now this is perhaps one of the keynotes of the entire situation. Things have several apparent causes and one true cause. The attitudes that we hold, the situations that arise in our lives, are nearly always related to some basic principle or to some basic factor with which we have been unable to cope successfully. Most persons' lives are projections of a small group of psychic patterns. These patterns may be traceable to early life. They may be traceable to shock or intensity or disappointment or tragedy. They may be the accumulation of habits. They may arise in our believing or in our lack of self-control or in our appetite, but there will nearly always be 
a few basic pressures which have become submerged and which are now known to us only by a series of scattered and sometimes apparently unrelated circumstances. It is very valuable for the individual attempting to correct a defect of character to become aware of the basic reason. One of the most common examples of this type of thing is multiple marriage. An individual makes an unfortunate marriage. This uh, may happen to nearly anyone, and therefore there is nothing extraordinary about it. But after getting out of this difficulty, he makes another similar unfortunate marriage and may have three or four such marriages during a lifetime, all essentially unfortunate, all some way related together. The uh, person will always have an obvious reason. Uh, the other individual was either undesirable or misunderstood or had temperamental peculiarities resulting in incompatibility. But where a pattern continues, over a series of similar instances, there is almost always a psychic cause somewhere in the consciousness of the individual himself, or certain business procedures which cause a person to be in difficulties most of the time. Now, not long ago, I received a letter from a man who has had a series of business difficulties. He says he tries very hard, he builds a good business, things apparently go very well, and then at the critical moment, he suddenly loses complete interest in his work. It is work which he likes to do, or thought he did. It is work in which he is reasonably successful. But all of a sudden, the job isn't interesting anymore. About this time, of course, a competitor takes over. Someone else moves into the position and the uh, person's own indifference causes him to lose his area of financial security. This has happened a dozen times. It has resulted in a broken home. It has added continuously and constantly to the difficulty of this person who has become radically disturbed and who has even reached the point of contemplating suicide. There seems to be no way out of this recurrent difficulty. Now, things of this nature cannot be considered merely as separate things. Where you have any basic temperamental intensity which is causing trouble, there may be a number of excuses, but there has to be a reason. There has to be a true cause. The chronic worrier, the individual by nature critical, the born autocrat, or the person lacking adequate ambitional motive, the person without stability, or the individual utterly and impossibly stubborn. 
these characteristics rise from something. And as long as they remain uncorrected, the characteristics will result in difficulty. The general thought used to be that if you have a bad disposition, get over it. Now, this is still, to a measure, good advice, but it has its limitations. If the cause of the trouble is more general and deeper than the dispositional peculiarity, and we merely inhibit the peculiarity by imposing will upon it, we will simply cause the major difficulty to break out elsewhere. Thus, the individual who fought desperately uh, to overcome a bad temper finally was able to control the temper, but he became an alcoholic in the process. The problem was never solved. The value of your dream as an instruction factor is that it is frequently possible by means of dream analysis to penetrate into this area of essential cause we find it possible to reach symbolically into the thing itself, that which is properly and eternally to blame, the thing that is real. Uh, for example, a very timid man uh, who had never had very much success in making up his mind whose intellectual achievements were rather good, uh, but whose economic status was always hazarded by lack of personality drive. He simply could not advance his own cause. He suffered from a terrible inferiority complex. And this led him to underestimate and undervalue himself and to be a considerable disappointment to those around him who had very little success in trying to transform him into a more positive and integrated person. He did not dream a great deal, in fact, very seldom. But under a process of analysis, he had a very interesting dream. And this dream was nothing more nor less than the dream of Jack and the Beanstalk. Now, for him, this might seem to be little more help than his previous unawareness of the situation. But the story of Jack and the Beanstalk has considerable psychological integration. And as the dream proceeded, uh, this Jack, seeing himself in the dream, uh, found in the fact that he had to conceal himself in the house of the ogre, who came in rumbling and grumbling and shouting, and terrified the uh, dreamer almost out of his wits. This phase of the dream continued to be prominent until it became obvious that somewhere in the life of this individual, the ogre factor tied into his timidity. Somewhere there was an ogre. Somewhere there was a giant. 
Now, what was the final, more or less, clearing circumstance? It might be quite easy to say that this ogre could be a person, that this ogre might have been an overstern or dominating parent or a cruel guardian. This ogre might also represent uh, some basic fear by which the individual tormented himself. This the ogre could be a form of guilt mechanism in which the person could not dare to proceed because of something in his background of which he was frightened or ashamed. This ogre could be a moral element in his life uh, which had never been uh, sublimated or had never been uh, clarified. But in this particular instance, the ogre represented a rather neutral thing in comparison to the intensity of the pattern. This person was a, an adopted person. And before adoption, he had remained for several years in a public institution. The public institution was the ogre. This public institution carried with it certain factors. First of all, as far as he was able to learn, he was illegitimate. He had been left in this institution, deserted by his parents. The institution itself had not been especially cruel to him. He had only been one of many unfortunate children who had to be cared for, but about whose inner life very little was thought. Finally, adoption brought a certain fulfillment of a better way of life. But the institution and the circumstances became this gigantic shadow. This shadow of a forlornness in the beginning of life. This shadow of the world first experienced as a strangely heartless thing. Not cruel, but simply without heart. And combined to that, the fact that society had gradually revealed to him the fact that he himself was probably nameless, had been deserted and unwanted. As a result of this, the world gradually became the extension of the uh, orphanage. And everything in the world that happened to him became an extension of this cruel message that had reached him in early life, that stamped him with a peculiar mark of being a para or an outcast. To make the matters a little more complicated, this man in his self-pride, trying to fight this thing inside of himself, had completely submerged it. He had told no one. It was only after analysis began that he even admitted that he had ever been in an orphan. And it was only after a long period of work with a counselor that he finally, almost tearfully, uh, revealed his illegitimacy. These factors all combined together with the sensitivity of his own nature to produce this ogre kind of dream. 
Somewhere he had read the story. Somehow he knew it. He related both the relevant and the irrelevant parts. He went through the early part of the dream, but without any particular emotional involvement. He climbed up the beanstalk. He did all these things. But when he came into the house where the ogre was, he became completely paralyzed to fear. Fear that the world uh, would know this awful secret that he had carried throughout his life. Fear that the world would hurt him again. Fears that somebody knew would hunt him out and finally expose him. It was all a very sad, almost a ridiculous situation. Yet it had eaten deeply into the life of an individual. And this sense of inadequate origin had prevented him from ever achieving anything beyond that origin. He felt himself as one born to slavery born to a lower way of life, born to humility and humiliation. After a considerable degree of counseling, the ogre dream finally was overcome. And it was overcome not in the way that it might be expected that the ogre disappeared or the little Jack was able to get down the beanstalk and cut it down, as in the original story, so that the ogre and everything perished together. But in this case, there was a gradual transformation of the ogre. And it ended up by the dreamer and the dream being of a very compatible nature. The fellow was getting along excellently with the ogre at the last report. He had overcome the fear. But the ogre seemed apparently to be a symbol suitable to summarize the shadow, this heavy imponderable that hurt all the time. Uh, there is also a good case of what we might term the Amphortus dream, which bears a similar kind of stigma. You remember in the Grail legend, Amphortus, the king of the Grail attempted to rescue uh, the holy spear from the black magician. But the black magician turned the spear and thrust it into the side of Amphortus. Amphortus had intended to use the spear to destroy the power of evil. But the power of evil took hold of the spear and wounded the king of the grail. This wound would not heal. And the dream of the, of the Amphortus nature is usually the dream of some kind of a sickness or a deformity or an ill that will not get well. It is sometimes one of the commonest forms of it is the eternal toothache. Uh, there are cases where an individual has dreamt month after month of having this toothache. Nothing could be done about it. Uh, dentists and everyone tried, but the toothache continued. It could not be cured. Other individuals are crippled at uh, sensing deformity in a dream, a deformity which by its very nature will not get well. Thus this amphortist type of dream, the dream of the wound that will not mend, uh, seemingly 
is related to a certain kind of psychological problem to which the person has associated an inevitability. He has decreed that this condition shall not and will not change. Now this conscious decreeing of this usually involves some kind of loyalty. It represents a person sometimes obligated, either by circumstances or self-obligation, to a way of life or to a situation which gradually becomes unendurable. Sometimes it is this old story of matter of principle, the dream that will not get well has also been associated with a kind of loss from which the person never expects to be able to recover. A man, of, in, his, a man in his early 60s, unwise or unreasonable investment, lost most of his world holding. This resulted in a dream relating to not getting well. The man consciously believed that he was too old to recuperate, recoup his fortune, that therefore he was now in a hopeless condition of financial sickness. He was sick with an incurable ailment. And wherever the ailment is, in, is incurable, it is involved in the idea that the individual cannot correct the prevailing condition. There are cases also in which, for example, a religion preventing divorce. Two persons living together who are unable to attain any degree of compatibility. Either one of those persons, and even both, may develop this dream of not getting well, of things continuing and going on. A criminal who has been convicted of a major crime and has served his sentence returns to society but has this sentence hanging over his head. As a result of that, he is never able to feel sure that his social condition will uh, be any value to him. He is always afraid that his record will catch up with him. This very often results again in this not getting well dream. He doesn't dare to become too much associated with anything for fear that his old crime will destroy any new relationships or values which he may build. He may also, with this type of dream, be one who has tried to conceal his older record. Usually it is the concealment factor which results in the pressure that disturbs the life. This pressure disturbing the life of the individual this dream of not getting well very often means a very spotted and unfortunate career. The type of life that may end on Main Street. The type of individual whose incentives have perished and who has no sense of being able to restore his own nature. Now this dream is instructive. It is not merely there to tell him that he cannot get well. It is there to point out to him that his condition is due to this factor, is due to this pattern, 
sometimes the moment the dream is presented and analyzed, the whole mystery is solved. The uh, subject immediately realizes that this is his dilemma. It is then necessary to point out that his condition is not due to the fact that he cannot get well, but the fact that he has no libido in this area, that his psychologically he has drained off his resources and has no energy with which to energize any activity. The energy is all flowing away from him in the blood of his womb. If he can gain a different relationship to the incident, if he can awaken to the full fact that he is not actually the victim of the circumstances with which he has separately explained each of his failures. The first time the job wasn't much good. The second time the boss was impossible. The third time he had to work with people who uh, made life difficult for him. Another time he lost his job due to the ulterior motive of another employee. And so on, on and on, until the pressure of explanation obscured the original fact that he really lost all of these things simply because he had resolved inside of himself to let go of life. Life was punishing him psychologically. Therefore, it was his duty to punish life. And one of the ways in which we punish life is to destroy ourselves because in each of us, our own life is symbolic of life in general. So the wound can be healed the moment the person realizes that it originates in a complex or originates in a pattern which has gradually become a reality, not in itself but through its symptoms. And just as a dream gives one group of symbols for the interpretation of the situation, so the circumstances through which the person passed form another group of symbols bearing upon the original cause. Once this cause is recognized, once the individual comes face to face with it, he can begin to work with it. And he discovers the degree in which he has succeeded by the gradual transformation of the dream content itself. Finally, if he is successful in what he is doing, Whatever the adversary is becomes a friend. Whatever the difficulty is, heals. And in some mysterious way, the wound is cured, even though there was no expectation that it could be. An individual hobbling along as a psychological cripple under a very peculiar fixation experienced a dream in which he was miraculously healed when the fixation itself was broken. Now, he was sufficient of a rationalist that he could not accept in his own mind the mere fact that suddenly, as a cripple, he could walk again. Therefore, to rationalize this in his own mind, he devised a dream miracle by which he was able to make his healing reasonable by drawing upon the miracle content of world legendary 
and tradition. He found, however, a way to symbolically present the remedy which had come to him. Thus, whenever we discover the psychological content of a dream and its meaning, the dream itself must be observed, and under therapy the dream generally continues. And as this dream comes under the influence of therapy, it gradually changes its own content. And when the content of the dream is no longer dangerous, or no longer difficult, or tragic, and no longer a restraint, we are then reasonably assured that the basic cause of the attitude has been reached, that the basic cause has been corrected. From this point on, the secondary symptoms fall away of themselves, for they cannot exist apart from the cause of themselves. Thus the dream reveals the cause and also helps us to discover the degree of remedy <laughs> which we have achieved. In this way, and in many other ways, the dream is a very instructive experience. Uh, but our time is up, so we'll have to do some more instructing next week. <laughs>